You're listening to the Queensland Brain Institute's lecture series. The Merson Lecture for 2017 is presented by Australia's Chief Scientist, Dr Alan Finkel, titled Getting Ahead. Thank you, Aidan, and I can point out that the so-called Finkel Review took exactly eight months. <laughs> and, and I wanted to, by the way, is the sound quality okay if I speak at this volume? Great. Um, and just in the last two hours, which is a quarter of eight, I've had four, which is half of eight, <laughs> interesting experiences. Um, the director, Pankaj Saad, took me around and I saw a fabulous lab where they're developing uh, focused ultrasound for opening up the blood-brain barrier to do treatment of Alzheimer's in sheep at the moment, uh, but one day in people. I um, had an opportunity to go and see uh, zebrafish um, in a rig being recorded from by neuroscientists and computer hacks who were trying to work out how the neural code works. And I had an opportunity to see a lab where they're treating people for obsessive compulsion disorder. Not cheap, real people. It's a breakthrough. And the fourth exciting thing is that Linda Richards took me to Cafe Nero and I got a really good coffee. I was very pleased. <laughs> okay, to the speech. And I'd like to begin tonight by flexing our brains. I want you to travel back in time with me by the power of thought to Egypt, 2000 BC. You are an investor in a pyramid scheme. You've gone to inspect progress on the construction site when suddenly a careless slave up high dislodges a chunk of sandstone It comes hurtling down 100 metres and clonks you square in the head. You open your eyes and you're lying in the sand, staring at the clouds and bleeding profusely. It's ugly, but you're in luck, you're wealthy. So your slaves, they pick you up, dust you off, and carry you for treatment by the most expensive doctors in Egypt. The doctors immediately consult the medical literature, or in this case, of course, the medical hieroglyphics. It's a document that you can still read today. It's called the Edwin Smith Papyrus. And what treatment does it recommend? First, the diagnosis. The doctors will poke around with their hands and watch to see if you shudder or start leaking any interesting fluids. Then, the treatment. They fetch a nice cow and they slaughter it. They cut out a juicy steak and they slap it on your head to staunch the blood. Then, they'll get some honey and smear your head They'll wrap you in linen, pour milk in both ears, and hand you the bill, and they will probably barbecue the rest of the cow. So if anybody amongst you have reservations about the efficacy of modern medicine, you're welcome to try out the good old-fashioned way at home. But we shouldn't think too badly about the ancient Egyptians. At least they had a grasp of basic anatomy and a knack for cutting up corpses. For the next 4,000 years, that was about as sophisticated as it got. The secrets of the brain were locked so firmly in our skulls that we could learn next to nothing about its structures. 
its functions or its disorders. Because you can only record what your technology actually allows you to see. And whatever you see, you have to try to interpret. The ancient Romans, they thought of the brains in terms of their most advanced technology, which was aqueducts and waterways, connecting things up. Enlightenment scholars in the 17th century, they thought of the brain as a clock. The Victorians compared it to electricity. The Edwardians compared it to a telephone network. At university, I was taught to interpret it as a computer. And today, of course, we think of the brain as something more akin to the internet, a web of complex pathways and interconnections. It reminds me of the saying about economic models. All of them are wrong, some of them are helpful. Well, the same is true of metaphors. They inch us closer to the truth. For every useful metaphor, of course, we come up with a lot of bad ones and bad theories to match. Think of a few from the past. Dualism, the pineal gland, is the conveyor belt between the brain and the soul. Phrenology, you can spot a criminal by the shape of their head. Parapsychology, stare at a spoon and you can bend it with the force of your mind rays. Nonsense. The father of modern physics, Isaac Newton, he said that he stood on the, father, on the shoulders of giants. Well, the father of modern neuroscience was Ramon E. Cajal, and he found himself standing in a quagmire of crackpots. But he was a nice man, so he put it more kindly, and he called it my forgotten corner. So dark, it didn't have a name. But in that corner in the late 19th century, he found a window and he opened it with drawings of the brain so meticulous, so accurate and so beautiful that we still publish them in textbooks today, in science and art textbooks. We looked through that window, we saw with his eyes and we glimpsed for the first time the awesome scope of the final frontier in science. Not the distant stars, not the deep oceans, the brain, the human brain, ourselves. And from that point on, there was no turning back. So let's jump forward now to Australia in 2017. This time, you're an ordinary person in a good way, but something's wrong. Your speech is slurred, your vision is blurry, you feel dizzy. So you get yourself to the hospital for an emergency CT or MRI. They find a blood clot in your brain. Yes, it's a stroke. But they can give you clot-busting drugs that will dissolve the obstruction. Or if they can't, they'll insert a catheter through an artery in your groin and feed it into your brain, withdraw it and physically remove the clot. All this in less time that it would take a doctor in ancient Egypt to go out and find a cow. You'll be transferred to a stroke unit for monitoring and follow-up care. Now, you might find all of these technologies astonishing, but to the doctors, they are simply routine. 
the standard care for the average patient on a typical day in a nation like ours. To be astonished, they will say, look at what comes next, and not just in the treatment of stroke, but across the full breadth of that final frontier. Imagine if we could help people suffering from chronic pain, not with addictive painkillers, but with an implant in the lower back that sends an electric current into the spinal cord to mask the pain, and then records the signals from the spinal cord nerves in real time so that the current can be fine-tuned to deliver maximum relief. Imagine if we could, stall, could install a pacemaker in the brain, not dissimilar to what I saw today, for conditions like Parkinson's disease, blocking errant signals from faulty brain cells and reducing tremors, enabling mobility, and in some cases, restoring speech. Imagine if we could learn from the way that the brain collects and stores and processes enormous volumes of information, consuming just a tiny amount of energy in such a little space. What if we could replicate, replicate something as intricate, intricate as a neural network in silicon on a computer chip? Well, all of these technologies, they're not just plausible, they're in production. It's an extraordinary moment to witness the early payoff on decades and decades of painstaking work to image the brain, to study its mechanisms, to learn from its secrets. About 20 years ago, I was sitting in the audience listening to the presenters at a neuroscience symposium and hearing about the breakthroughs and the new research avenues that those breakthroughs opened, I said to myself that we probably knew about 1% of all there was to learn about the brain. And every year, I repeat that little exercise, and every year, there's an avalanche of discoveries. And every year, I'm saying exactly the same thing. We probably know about 1% of all there is to learn about the brain. The more we learn, the more co complex the puzzle appears. And so, we have extraordinary advances in science on the one hand, and on the other hand, next to no traction in the metrics that dominate our lives. What is the leading cause of death among Australian women? Dementia. It overtook heart disease this year. We're getting much better at treating heart disease, but we're not getting much better at treating dementia. What is the average life expectancy of a person diagnosed with motor neuron disease? two and a half years, there is no known cure and no effective treatment. What is the annual cost of depression in Australia? About $13 million, sorry, $13 billion. The human toll is infinitely worse. Suicide is now the leading cause of death among young Australians. I lost a dear friend, the great composer Alan Zavod, to glioblastoma last year. The survival rates for brain cancer have not improved meaningfully in the last three decades. Is there a person in this room who hasn't longed desperately for answers? Answers that with every, that with every step forward just slipped further away. 
But slowly, slowly, we are bringing the insights together from molecular neuroscience to cellular neuroscience to systems neuroscience to behavioural neuroscience. We are seeing that first wave of truly breakthrough therapies. And so, I'm now prepared to say it, we are entering the era of translation. And the story could be told in just one device, the stentrode. And I have some tiny attachment to the story at the start. At an unspecified time in the past, I completed my PhD, patch clamping snail neurons, snail brains, to measure the electrical activity between brain cells. And back then, it was extremely hard going. The tools I needed were not commercially available. I had to design and build them myself. It was the start of my company, Axon Instruments, but that's another story. And I was only one tiny part of what followed. A whole new generation of experimental tools, capturing progress, progress in computing and genetics and machine learning and biofabrication and so much more. With these tools, scientists were able to not just record electrical activity, but to translate it into computer code. The next step was to translate that code back into a signal, a signal that would prompt a device to move. Think about it. We could pick up electrical signals, convert them to code, and then into an action. We could control a device by controlling our thoughts. What might that device be? What device would we literally want to control with thought? Well, how about an exoskeleton so a paralysed person can walk again. Enter the stentrode, a device the size of a matchstick. It's an array of electrodes that can be inserted by a catheter into a blood vessel and fed up to the middle of the brain. Once the stentrode is expanded, the blood continues to flow through the blood vessel and the electrodes pick up the electrical signal from the adjacent motor cortex, the neurons outside the blood vessel. Feed those brain signals into an external computer. Interpret them to drive the motors on a bionic limb, mobility in a matchstick. And here I come to the story again from the sidelines. The inventor, Tom Oxley, approached me about five years ago when I was Chancellor of Monash University. All I could offer him was enthusiastic encouragement and he didn't need much. And since that time, I have followed his progress with admiration. Did the world imagine the, stent the stentrode when I was patch clamping snail neurons? No. But everything that followed, the global investment in basic research, in building better research infrastructure, in training up a generation of researchers, all of it is contained in that matchstick. But let me pause there because I'm conscious I've introduced two words, investment and infrastructure. One of the first things that I discovered as chief scientist is those words are intensely interesting to a number of people. It's been put to me, for example, that the brain consumes about 20% of the body's energy. On that premise, brain research should get about 20% of all the available funds. <laughs> Certainly worth a try. 
But on any measure, it is fair to say that the brain is already in the ascendant. The vital signs are strong. We can measure it in blockbuster programs. The Europeans have the 10-year Human Brain Project, one of the two largest scientific projects that the EU has ever funded. China has the 15-year Brain Project announced just last year. The United States has the Brain Initiative, B-R-A-I-N, all spelt in capital letters, and they kicked it off with $100 million from President Obama, and it's funded over the next 10 years or so to the tune of $5 billion. Along with the public funds, there's corporate interest, with ventures like Neuralink, from the man who brought you Tesla and SpaceX, and the Allen Institute, from the co-founder of Microsoft. But perhaps the best measure of the health of the field are the green shoots, the influx of young researchers, among them the best and the brightest of our generation. When I returned to Australia from the United States, I wanted to do, to do something to foster that generation in Australia. And I established the Australian course in advanced neuroscience, known as ACAN. It's an annual three-week residential program that brings the cream of early neuroscience researchers together with experts working at the absolute edge of the field. It's strongly supported by the whole of the Australian and New Zealand neuroscience community with intensive support from UQ and QBI. And now ACAN has been running for 13 years. If the ACAN alumni are the future, then Ramoni Kahal would be proud. So what next? What next for Australia? What should our contribution be? Well, we could start with a quick head scan. If we think of the Australian brain research community as a brain, and we're all neuroanatomists neuro here, or at least passable amateurs, then you'd say we have a healthy cerebral cortex. We have the capacity for genuinely world-leading research, with particular strengths in imaging. The National Imaging Facility, for example, is gold standard, and one of the few research infrastructures able to integrate the insights from the most advanced high-resolution scanners with the broader evidence from conventional imaging tools in more widespread use. At the local level, at the institutional level, early on in my term as the Chancellor of Monash University, I was amazed to find out, to discover that we had just installed a, and I'm going to quote it here, a 300,000 electron volt double aberration corrected Titan transmission electron microscope. How good is that? Eight years later, we had installed a more modestly named, but more suitable for biology, cryo-electron microscope. And our scientists were now seeing the details of biological proteins that previously they could only imagine. And this year, Swiss, German and French researchers received the Nobel Prize for the invention of the cryo-electron microscope. So we have the tools and we've also got the skills and the reputation. So sticking with the brain analogy, we could call that the limbic system, 
We have highly competitive research institutions, including the, the Queensland Brain Institute and the biomedical cluster in my hometown of Melbourne. Just as important as the components are the connections, and we've got them. We're small enough to be a network community and large enough to be globally relevant. We have a promising blood supply in the Medical Research Future Fund and the Biomedical Translation Fund. And now we have cranial nerves, the equivalent of them in the Australian Brain Alliance, relaying the messages from the brain research community to the rest of the body. So yes, it's a healthy brain. The synapses are firing. We want to put that organ to work. It's not for me to define what the mission of the Brain Alliance should be, but I do take a keen interest in its progress and I seem to be in the habit of giving advice. So let me offer three thoughts on the way forward. First, set an ambitious goal. And by ambitious, I mean realistic for scientists and inspiring for everyday people. Both are important. A goal that is ambitious to the point of absurdity is useless. We set out expecting to fail and we forgive ourselves for falling short. A goal that is hard but achievable is motivating, credible to our peers, credible to investors and credible to government. But it can't just be credible, it should also be exciting. Excitement is the magic that takes the truly credible to the compelling. Brain research to the Australian people is the hope of a life-changing miracle a treatment for autism, an answer for dementia, eyes to see, legs to dance, things we can be proud to call Australian. At every conference that I attend, someone is sure to mention the big three, the stump jump plough, the black box recorder, the cochlear ear implant. Those who are more up to date will mention Gardasil. And I agree, they're all great. But my dream is to go to a conference and hear about the next cochlea in neuroscience, the iconic achievement that will make Australians proud. So let's set out to create it. Second, put the focus on transformational research technology. Call me an engineer, I'll wear it. But when it comes to neurotechnology, I'm not alone. There is a very clear and very deliberate focus on technologies in both the American and the European agendas. The Americans front-ended in the full name for their capital letters BRAIN initiative. It's BRAIN Research Through Advancing Innovative Neurotechnologies. Coincidental, came out to BRAIN. They back-ended in the program's goals, safe and effective medical devices for consumers. Technology is the alpha and the omega, the driver and the goal. The ambition of that agenda is truly remarkable. Last year, I learned of a project in DARPA. Do you know what DARPA is? It's the advanced research wing of the US military. DARPA wants to build a brain-machine interface 
with the capacity to bi-directionally communicate clearly and individually with up to a million neurons. Now, I've got to tell you, communicating in a brain with a single neuron is insanely difficult. Communicating with a million neurons is a million times insane, at least on the face of it. But what extraordinary breakthroughs might be made in the attempt? And what extraordinary opportunities might, array, might arise for the breakthrough thinkers? Like the members of Robert Capps's team, whom I met about a month ago at St Vincent's Medical Research Institute in Melbourne. That team is well aware of the inability of axons to adhere to metal electrode surfaces. And they recognise that that's the limiting factor for connecting single neurons to electronic circuits. It's like trying to stick gold onto aluminium. If you ask an engineer, he or she will tell you it doesn't work. Unless what you do is coat the aluminium first with a layer of nickel and then plate the gold to the nickel. And you can do something similar with axons and neurons. Sorry, axons and electrodes. The prototype that I saw at St Vincent's uses an intermediate layer of muscle cells. Turns out that muscle cells stick to metal where neurons won't. So you let the muscle cells stick to the metal and then attract the axons from the nerve cells to form neuromuscular, neuromuscular junctions. And presto, you have a stable connection and individual connections to neurons might be possible, not yet proven in the living brain. But it's a breakthrough idea, a transformational tool. The physicist Dyson Freeman had a maxim. New directions in science, he said, are launched by new tools more often than by new concepts. If you ask any neuroscientists, you'll be told that Dyson Freeman was dead right. I think, for example, of MRI magnetic resonance imaging. This year in July, we marked 40 years since the first human MRI scan. Now, it was supposed to have happened seven weeks earlier in May, 40 years ago, but the first attempt failed. The subject was the lead inventor. He put himself in, but he had a little too much body fat for the device to work. Fetch a grad student. And luckily for science, and for the grad student, a crude image was obtained. A 2D view of the heart and lungs, reconstructed with coloured pencils from a mere 100 data points. And that image was only possible because a physicist named Isidore Rabi wanted to study the nuclear spin of sodium back in the 1930s. And he was just too lazy to, book up, to put up uh, for long with the cumbersome tools that were available. So he worked incredibly hard to make them better. He observed that the quantum phenomenon of nuclear magnetic resonance back in 1937 with a tool that soon became standard in physics and chem labs. It took another pioneer to think through its potential application in the life sciences and in time to study the brain. 30 years ago, it was a challenge 
in a whole 20-minute session with a patient to take one low-resolution MRI image. But now we can take high-resolution images every second. At first, we could see the grey matter, the cell bodies. Now, differential tractography MRI shows us the white matter. That's the connections across the brain. And it's revolutionised our understanding of cerebral networks. To start, we just imaged structure. Then we imaged the functional areas of the brain. And now we image thinking. And we couldn't imagine neuroscience without it. So it is technology that shifts the horizon of possibility for science. But of course, that's not all. When the horizon shifts for science, it shifts for society as well. Today, the MRI is a standard part of medicine, a household name, with considerably more than a million MRI scans across the world every week. The technology has come so far that, that we can now do therapeutic ultrasound guided by real-time MRI to focus on a tumour and destroy it. It's extraordinary. The lesson that I take is that we can't expect to be competitive in science or innovation if we leave the tool-making to other people. And I do speak from experience, having deliberately given up my academic research career to make scientific instruments that help the research career of thousands of other neuroscientists. We need to be connected to the big global missions. We need to be in the thick of the action. And we need to be adept in testing and refining and translating here in Australia because that's what pushes us forward. Third and final, our research institutions should aim to be among the world's trusted information sources. Let me ask you a question. How many of you would say that your memory is not as good as it used to be? You don't have to put your hand up. How many of you would like to boost your memory? Now you can put your hand up. Everybody. Excellent. So you'll all be interested in the in this is a trade name, the brain stimulator which is one of the most popular examples of an outbreak of transcranial direct current stimulators, electrodes across the head. The brain stimulator comes in the form of a kit. You get the device, the electrodes, you get a diagram of your head, and you get the positioning headband to stop the electrodes from falling off as they deliver zaps of memory-boosting electricity to your temples. The 9-volt battery is not included. If you are worried about the metallic taste in your mouth, the tingling or the itchiness in your skull, or the occasional flashes of bright light, you can purchase the saline solution applicator bottle. In other words, you can dab some salty water on your head. Now, in the absence of a hypothesis of why it should work, in the absence of evidence that it actually does work, the brain stimulator is a dreadful example, example of electronic snake oil. 
The good news is that the brain simulator and similar devices seem to be popular only with a small fringe of the do-it-yourself brain hacking community. But that's not true of the miracle cures for children with autism. The magic pills and potions that promise to cure brain cancer. The myths and stigma attached to conditions like schizophrenia. All of these things are actively harmful to many people. And they're not just harmful to people in desperate situations, they're harmful to science. They come cloaked as science. They take the focus from science and they tarnish the good name of science. We could all lament the reality that the internet is awash with quackery, anecdotes, PR stunts and media releases. But if it's a problem, that flood of information, trusted or not, it's also an opportunity. I would like to see our institutions build their reputations as the go-to trusted information sources, not just for Australians, but for anyone looking for accurate, up-to-date and accessible information. Take QBI. They've done extraordinary work in developing accessible guides and information pages on topics like depression and Alzheimer's. The QBI website is not the usual register of researcher interests and media releases. Instead, it's a go-to resource. It's the place that I'll go to for trusted information about brain diseases. Politicians and members of the public will eventually find it. And they'll remember QBI when they think about brain diseases. Truly, there's no doubt that other institutions are also actively investing in their public information platforms. So let's make that a collective focus and a strength. So my three pieces of advice. First, have a bold ambition. Second, focus on transformational technologies. And third, be the trusted source of information. Easy to remember, with or without that nine volt battery. Now, I began this speech in ancient Egypt, 2000 BC. Let me conclude by pointing to the day when our descendants look back on 2017 and our best tools seem about as primitive as the honey, the cow and the milk in both ears. It won't take 4,000 years, but the brain is so complex that the research to get there will keep many thousands of brilliant researchers occupied for decades, perhaps for centuries. The brain is so complex. So neuroscientists in the audience, your careers will not be limited by lack of questions that need to be answered. The possibilities stretch out beyond our imaginations, but the potential is right here in our brains. So let's tackle the future Head on. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Queensland Brain Institute's lecture series. For more lectures or podcasts, go to qbi.uq.edu.au slash podcasts.